0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. This episode will conclude our series on the Song of Songs. As we've seen, this book traces the delicate courtship and dance of forbidden love between two field workers. These two people mirror one another's compliments back and forward in a mimetic exchange. This flurry of mutual admiration escalates and awakens affection between the two lovers who become blind to one another's flaws. As we have noted, this process complements the kindling of mimetic rivalry, which also blinds and induces a heightened emotional state. While the scapegoat mechanism manipulates this emotional state to expel the anathema from the community, mimetic love generates a type of love sickness which can generate clinginess. Early in the Song of Songs, the beloved clings to her shepherd king and attempts to apprehend his love as if it was simply a desired object to be grasped by force. Unfortunately, this approach stifles the shepherd king's desire for his beloved. He begins to feel suffocated within the relationship. However, by the end of the poem, the beloved begins to recognize her shepherd king as an autonomous person in his own right, whose desire and affection she must deftly kindle. As I'll discuss later on in this episode, this process marks the change from the mimetic process of desire and infatuation to true love, which is actually anti mimetic. Because of this transformation, their relationship blossoms and flourishes. Ironically, the community that once condemned and maligned their relationship begins to view them as love experts. As we read on from chapter 8 verse 5, the community observe the interaction between the beloved and her shepherd king, and even ask them for advice. Who is that coming up from the wilderness embracing her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you, there your mother was in labour with you, there she who bore you was in labour. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a blazing fire. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can rivers drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. The community have observed the beloved and her shepherd king journeying together from the wilderness of shame and isolation into the garden of love. The verb translated as leaning or embracing in verse 5 communicates the intimacy between these two lovers. Having observed this intimacy, the community now desire it for themselves. But we will return to this idea later in the episode. First, let's consider the words, Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labour with you. Recall that back in chapter 2 verse 3, the Beloved describes her unique desire for her shepherd king by likening him to an apple tree among the trees of the forest. Here, the apple tree refers to something much larger, the realm in which desire is awakened to create life and love. Under the spell of desire, the shepherd king's mother conceived and gave birth to him. Now desire awakens the passions of a new generation, who will find love with one another and prepare to start a new life and family together. This verse extols the creative aspect of love and desire as it perpetually inspires people to find love and intimacy throughout the generations. In this way, love contrasts mimetic rivalry. While mimetic rivalry kills and destroys, love creates and generates new life. The beloved then charges her shepherd king, set me as a seal upon your heart and a seal upon your arm. In the ancient Near East, a seal referred to an engraved image which was used to seal and verify important documents. The seal functions somewhat like a signature or even a pin code in our modern world. To avoid becoming a victim of fraud, people would always keep their seal on their person and it was often worn as a ring upon their hand. In these verses, the beloved charges her shepherd king to always cherish her and to protectively keep her close to him. She then goes on to describe love with similar imagery to that we have seen employed to portray mimetic violence throughout the appendageuch. She says that love is as strong as death, the ultimate outcome of mimetic rivalry and violence. The idea is then repeated as the term jealousy in the Hebrew kinah, which parallels love in this verse, is said to be as fierce as the grave. We have already seen this term in our studies of the Pentateuch. Kinah describes the fervent desire of a zealot who relentlessly pursues their desired object at all costs. For example, in Numbers chapter 25, verse 11, the term kinah is used to describe the burning of mimetic rivalry which inspires the priest, Phinehas, to execute, for want of a better term, a mixed-race couple as communal scapegoats. If this sounds unfamiliar, you can revisit the examination of this incident in episode 20, entitled, Preparing for the Land. In Numbers chapter 5, which was covered in episode 6, Kinar describes the anger of a jealous husband which is vented through the Sotar ritual. This ritual functions as a release valve for the husband's jealousy to avoid an outburst of violence. In both these examples, Kinar describes a furious rage which may generate violence if left unchecked. How should we interpret the use of Kinah? in Song of Songs. I think chapter 8 verse 6 is declaring the strength and volatility of love as a driver of human action. Throughout this book we have seen love blossom through an escalation of compliments between the beloved and her shepherd king. Through this mimetic process, the lovers have become utterly consumed with passion for one another, hence the comparison with the all-consuming power of death. Just as no one can resist or escape death's call, neither can anyone resist the power of love and romance. In our passage, the term kinar is paralleled with love to form a hendiatus, that is, Two complementary words which are joined together to more completely express an idea. In this case, two contrasting concepts are joined together to give a more complete picture of romantic love and desire. Although love itself is anti mimetic, in the right circumstances it can often generate a powerful jealousy which can lead to mimetic violence and rivalry. The term kinar emphasises the fervent, jealous passion that often accompanies romantic love. This jealousy has the potential to generate a violent rage if the relationship becomes compromised. Love's volatility can be seen in the case of betrayal. The betrayer becomes a rival to the other person in the relationship, a stumbling block and obstacle to their happiness as love turns to hate and resentment. Perhaps the term kinar in this verse emphasises the powerful yet volatile nature of love. In many ways, this portrait of love mirrors the phenomenon of mimetic rivalry and violence which is personified in the concept of the primitive sacred. The poem also describes love and jealousy as if they were flames of fire, the same imagery employed to describe the primitive sacred throughout the Pentateuch. An image that unfortunately may be all too familiar to my audience in Australia and America is that of a bushfire. These disasters begin with a small spark which is fanned into a modest flame and eventually spreads and spreads to engulf an entire forest. The image of a fire rapidly spreading from one tree to the next serves as a powerful image of mimetic rivalry and violence. As we have seen throughout our studies in the Pentateuch, mimetic violence is commonly described through the language of fire. But now, in the Song of Songs, love is described with a similar image. Mimetic imagery continues in the next verse as the poem suggests that the fire of love burns so strong and powerfully that it cannot be quenched by rivers of water. To translate this idea into our own modern framework, we might picture a raging fire burning on top of an oil spill in the middle of the ocean. Although in most other scenarios water would quickly quench fire, the oil floats on top of the water and provides ample fuel for the fire to burn in the middle of the ocean. Like a fire fueled by an oil spill, love is uniquely powerful and burns brightly, even in the most hostile of environments. People become completely consumed with love's powerful, unquenchable blaze. For this reason, the mere suggestion that love might be bought or sold is met with ridicule and scorn. Let's reflect for a moment on this idea of love as an unquenchable force which perpetually burns. As I have reiterated throughout this season, the reciprocal exchange of compliments between the beloved and her shepherd king escalates and gives way to a type of mutual infatuation. Although this infatuation eventually is transformed into love, it is very different in itself. While real love is anti-memetic, infatuation is conceived through mimetic desire, or more specifically what memetic theorists refer to as acquisitive desire. That is, mimetic desire that is focused upon a particular object. Acquisitive desire is conceived by imitating others who become our models. As we struggle to establish our own identity, we seek to become like others and to have what they have, which inevitably brings us into conflict with our models as we strive for the same common goals and objects. In the Song of Songs, the daughters of Jerusalem begin to imitate the Beloved when they observe and begin to desire the object of love. We saw this desire prompt the daughters of Jerusalem to imitate the Beloved and threaten to steal her shepherd king's affection in chapter 6. In response, the Beloved warns the daughters of Jerusalem to back off, declaring that the love of her shepherd king belongs to her and her alone. The same refrain is uttered in chapter two, verse sixteen, before the beloved searches and apprehends her shepherd king, as if he were some mere object to be obtained. At this point in the relationship, mimetic desire drives the reciprocal infatuation shared between the beloved and her shepherd king. We should distinguish this mimetically fueled infatuation from true love, which blossoms later in the poem. As a fruit of mimetic desire, infatuation grows swiftly but often fades just as quickly. So long as we are forced to strive and strain to overcome the obstacles to our desired object of love, our infatuation burns ever brighter. But once we obtain the object of our desire, in this case a relationship with a particular person who we believe will fulfil all our hopes and dreams, the game is up. Having apprehended our desired object, we find ourselves unfulfilled and disappointed. At this point, we either give up on love to pursue another object, or we continue to chase love, allowing our infatuation to centre upon a different person. Perhaps the partner's wrong, and if we find a different person, they might be the one to fulfil us and complete us. Either way, we reject the lover we once earnestly sought to embrace another mimetic idol in the hope that it will ultimately bring us fulfillment and happiness. Some of us will be all too familiar with this fickle cycle of infatuation and rejection without any obvious sense or rhyme or reason. But when viewed through the lens of mimetic theory, we begin to understand what drives this vicious cycle. As intimacy grows between the Beloved and her shepherd king, their mimetic infatuation for one another is transformed into true love. Although this transformation is difficult to track, chapter 7 verse 1 reports a shift in the Beloved's approach to her relationship. The Beloved once pursued her shepherd king's love as a desired object to be apprehended at all costs. This approach dehumanizes the shepherd king, reducing him to a mere object whose sole purpose is to gratify the desire of his beloved. That's what mimetic desire does. It kindles our passions into obsessions that drive us to use and abuse the people in our life for the sole purpose of apprehending our desired object. But in chapter 7 verse 10, the beloved alters her refrain to... I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. In this simple statement the beloved acknowledges the desire and personhood of her shepherd king. The growing intimacy between this couple has quenched mimetic desire and transformed it into something altogether different. When read alongside Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 Song of Songs Chapter 7 verse 10 may be interpreted as a reversal of mimetic rivalry between the beloved and her shepherd king. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, the Lord tells Eve that she will desire her husband, but he will rule over her. Actually, as I explained when we considered this text in an earlier episode, the term translated as desire suggests that Eve will desire to manipulate or control her husband, but her attempts to do so will be frustrated. We saw a similar narrative play out in the early parts of the Song of Songs, as the beloved pursues and apprehends her shepherd king. But alas, these efforts are frustrated as they ultimately push the shepherd king further away from her. Then, in chapter 7 verse 10, the order of play is reversed as the beloved declares that her shepherd king has set his desire upon her. Unlike Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, there is no talk of ruling over anyone because this desire stems from mutual love and affection, not mimetic rivalry. This love is not fickle and fragile like romantic infatuation, but strong and robust, even as strong as death itself. As we read on from verse 8, others in the community ask the Beloved for advice concerning love and their relationships. We have a sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build her turrets of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. The beloved responds, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes the complete package. Solomon had a vineyard at baal Haman. He let out his vineyard to farmers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. But my vineyard, my very own, is before me. Solomon, you can keep your thousand, and the farmers of the fruit can keep their two hundred. The shepherd king responds, O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. And the beloved says, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. In verse 8, some people from the community ask how they might kindle potential suitor's desire for their little sister. Although she has no breasts, in other words, she is too young for courtship, her siblings are planning for when the time is right. They enter this curious discussion about whether their sister is a wall or a door. Now I've heard preachers approach this verse from the framework of purity culture, and many translations seem to follow this interpretation. They suggest that the siblings are discussing whether their sister will be a wall, that is resistant to sexual advances, or a door which opens easily and welcomes them. The general thinking is that if their little sister becomes a wall, her brothers will protect her honour by building battle defences upon her, and if she is a door, they will enclose her, providing protection from potential sexual advances. But this is an anachronistic reading of the text. First, the structures which the young sisters' siblings pledge to construct are not battlements or armaments, as some translations suggest, like some sort of catapult or cannon, but more like the ornate brickwork that crowns the walls of a castle. These structures are to be constructed in silver, which suggests their function is more decorative than defensive. Second, cedar was an expensive building product, most commonly used in the lavish decoration of palaces and temples. It was too expensive and rare to be used for military defence structures. These details suggest that the siblings are planning to lavishly clothe and adorn their sister like royalty in the hope of attracting the attention of eligible suitors. Rather than protecting their little sister from sexual advances, the siblings are attempting to awaken sexual desire for their sister. In response, the beloved states that she was a wall and her breasts were like towers. In contrast to the little sister, the beloved's body has completely blossomed. She is fully grown, which reminds us of her perpetual refrain, which warns us not to awaken love before its time. Moreover, the beloved's appearance is plain and simple. No fancy dresses or ornaments. Yet at the right time, when love was ready to blossom, the shepherd king came to view her as the complete package. Now, obviously, that's my translation of the term Shalom in this text. Shalom communicates completeness and wellness in every aspect of life, including the realms of the spiritual-financial relationship and health. According to the Beloved, Her Shepherd King saw Shalom in Her, which I have translated as the complete package. The Shepherd King reinforces this idea throughout the Song of Songs as he describes his Beloved's beauty and virtue in glowing terms. Even though the Beloved was humble in her status, wealth and appearance, her shepherd king saw her as a beautiful princess. What do we make of the Beloved's words as an answer to the question posed? I think she is suggesting that love and desire do not require lavish dress and decoration. True love is blind anyway. As we say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. An understanding of how and when to kindle and nurture desire through the delicate dance of love is far more important than physical appearance. The beloved then continues her answer, arguing that true love is much more valuable than glory and riches. To make her point, the beloved recalls the image of King Solomon, who represents the very personification of wealth and glory. We saw Solomon play this same role in Chapter 3 where his honour and glory capture the hearts of the daughters of Jerusalem. The Beloved tells us that King Solomon has a prosperous vineyard at Baal Hamon, which can be translated as a wealthy lord. This vineyard generates an obscene amount of revenue for Solomon. Yet the Beloved values her own symbolic vineyard far above that of Solomon's money-making machine. You may recall that in the Song of Songs the Beloved's vineyard represents her desire for her love, which has now been satisfied by her relationship with her shepherd king. She would not trade her relationship for all the riches of Solomon, which again fits with the royal fantasy entertained by the Beloved and her shepherd king. Although there is nothing particularly noble or special about these two people, they each view one another as more beautiful and desirable than Solomon, in all his pomp and glory. The grand relationship enjoyed by the beloved and her shepherd king proves that you don't need to be a king or a queen to experience a royal fairy tale. The dance of true love has a beauty and grandeur of its own that surpasses any other desired object. The poem then calls to all those hiding in the gardens to lift their voice so that it may be heard. This instruction is directed to all those other people out there with forbidden love and desire. The shepherd king now calls these people to step out of the shadows and embrace their love openly and publicly. In this way, the shepherd king puts himself forward as a model for others to imitate. His words are a call to revolution, a call to break down the barriers of guilt and shame which prevent these people from enjoying the love and the relationships they've always dreamed of. The poem then ends with the beloved calling her shepherd king to make haste and be like a gazelle that they might ride off into the sunset together. As they retreat together, The beloved and her shepherd king place distance between them and the other people, which means they cannot engage in any sort of meaningful rivalry. This is an important move because the shepherd king has just set himself up as a model to be imitated. Such an action could see him engaging in rivalry with other potential suitors who might also fight for the hand of his beloved. To prevent this scenario, the beloved calls her shepherd king to flee away from her to a secluded place. That concludes our study in the Song of Songs and brings an end to Season 4. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.